Part 2 Ascendance Chapter 9 What's a Cabal? John Ewan was not happy. The past eight months had been stressful for the man in charge of LIBOR at the British Bankers Association. Starting the prior fall, he had been on the receiving end of a growing chorus of complaints about the benchmark. Phone calls and emails were pouring in from bankers who said the rate was divorced from reality. As the financial crisis intensified, banks' borrowing costs were soaring. Yet LIBOR wasn't moving. To make matters worse, the Bank of England was sniffing around about the rate's accuracy. At a November 2007 meeting at the central bank's headquarters, regulators and bank executives grumbled about LIBOR being too low. Ewan reassured participants that the BBA had rigorous quality control measures to prevent any problems. The reality was different. Ewan knew troubling things were afoot. Banks, terrified about the escalating financial crisis, were hardly lending to each other anymore. Giving money to another bank, even a relatively safe one, seemed to be a reckless act of doubling down on a highly distressed industry. The safer bet was just stashing money in accounts maintained at any number of central banks. That made the LIBOR estimates little more than guesswork. How could banks figure out how much it cost them to borrow from other banks if such borrowing wasn't taking place? Plus, banks had a powerful incentive to err on the side of understating their borrowing costs. If it seemed like it wasn't expensive for them to borrow, it might look to the outside world that they were more stable than a bank that faced higher borrowing costs, which would represent a bright red flag for jittery investors. One day, Ewan received a phone call from an acquaintance at Gulf International Bank. The Bahrain-based bank, which had a small London outpost, wasn't on a LIBOR setting panel. But the Gulf official had received a phone call from a bank that was on a panel, expressing interest in borrowing money from Gulf at a specific interest rate. Later that day, that same bank submitted LIBOR data that was a tenth of a percentage point, 10 basis points, lower than what they'd been willing to pay Gulf to borrow. In other words, the bank had been citing a specific rate and hours later appeared to be understating its borrowing costs by a substantial margin. Something smelled fishy, the Gulf executive complained to Ewan. Before he could divulge the name of the offending bank, Ewan asked him not to. He didn't want to know. Such knowledge might force him to act on the allegations. Ewan had a new boss named Angela Knight. Trained as a chemist, decades earlier she had run a small company before being elected to Parliament representing the Conservative Party in the mid-1980s. After losing a re-election bid, she decided to put her political connections to work, running a trade association for stockbrokers for the next decade. In April 2007, Knight joined the BBA as its CEO. She was a tough boss and prone to explosions. Ewan wasn't interested in provoking her, and he knew that pushing her into a confrontation with the BBA's members was a surefire way to cause ignition. Instead, Ewan decided to write a letter to the LIBOR banks, urging them to behave. At the very least, he needed to create a paper trail 
if only to be able to defend myself, that I'm taking action if I'm stood up by the FSA or by a journalist or something, he told an acquaintance. I do not want the fixings to lose credibility in the market, he pleaded to the FXMMC panel that was supposed to be overseeing LIBOR. He didn't have any specific request other than for the bankers to think about the situation. Then he apologized for eating up their precious time. The responses trickled in, with some bankers explicitly stating that rivals were routinely lying about their borrowing costs. More evidence arrived the following spring. A BBA employee got an unsolicited email from Deborah Wallace, who worked in the London office of a mid-sized German bank, Landesbank Berlin. It was clear to her that many banks' LIBOR submissions were simply bogus. This was bad news for a bank like hers, because the wild, unpredictable swings in LIBOR made it much harder for Landesbank Berlin to make money by lending money to individuals and small businesses, its bread-and-butter business. Wallace had come to believe that the phenomenon was more serious than banks simply understating their borrowing costs for fear of appearing financially weak. The problem is that they have a conflict of interest, Wallace wrote. Many banks had big portfolios of derivatives whose values rose and fell with LIBOR, and she suspected that banks were basing their LIBOR submissions, at least in part, on those positions. It is, of course, difficult for me to prove this, but surely I'm not the only one to raise this question. Scott Pang dreamed of becoming an astronaut. He loved the idea of floating weightless above the Earth, conducting trailblazing experiments that only a few dozen other humans had ever had the chance to perform. Born in Taiwan, Pang and his family moved to Swaziland when he was a young boy so that his father, a scientist, could teach advanced agricultural techniques to the southern African country's subsistence farmers. After a few years, the family relocated another world away to College Station, Texas, where the elder Pang took up teaching and research at Texas A&M University. By then, Scott's genius-level brains were on full display. He graduated from high school at the age of 15 and from Texas A&M with a degree in nuclear engineering three years later. The 18-year-old then headed to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology to get a Ph.D. in plasma physics. That's when he met Franklin Chang Diaz, a former astronaut who had helped build the International Space Station and then became a part-time researcher at MIT. Chang Diaz dazzled his mentees, commuting up to Boston on a trainer jet, a modified version of an F-5 fighter supplied by NASA. He and Peng worked together on research, jointly financed by NASA and the U.S. Air Force, into the next generation of rocket propulsion systems, which would rely on cutting-edge fusion technology. The former astronaut coached his protege on what he would need to do to follow in his footsteps. Then Chang Diaz learned something devastating about Pang. He was nearsighted. Chang Diaz hadn't realized it earlier because Pang wore contact lenses. The brilliant Pang somehow had neglected to look up the credentials of successful astronauts. Among them, 2020 vision. Pang was crushed. Just like that, his dreams were shattered. Once he got over the shock, 
Peng had to figure out quickly what he wanted to do with his life. It was 1991. He was about to graduate from MIT, and a recession meant that jobs were scarce in the scientific field in which he had figured he would spend his professional life. While in graduate school, he had taken a few finance classes at MIT's business school, so he put out some feelers to banks. Before he knew it, he had landed a job in New York creating exotic financial instruments at Lehman Brothers, at the time one of the world's most aggressive investment banks. Peng joined the swelling army of engineers, mathematicians, and scientists heading to work on Wall Street. Notwithstanding the accidental nature of his career, Peng came to love working in banking. The challenges presented by designing and understanding complex financial vehicles like derivatives shared some traits with the challenges of creating newfangled rocket engines. One similarity was that not many people, aside from Peng, really grasped how either type of device worked, certainly not well enough that they could actually take them apart and then put them back together again. Peng was stimulated, but he didn't like everything he saw among his Lehman colleagues. He was sitting with a group of four other traders who peddled something called structured notes to clients. At the time, in the mid-1990s, structured notes were among Wall Street's hottest fads, a type of bond whose value was partly linked to derivatives. The notes were custom-made by investment banks on behalf of companies that were looking for new ways to entice investors to lend them money. Peng soon realized that most of those investors didn't understand what they were buying or what the products were actually worth. The investment banks were taking advantage of that ignorance, which was a big part of the reason the market was booming. The practice offended Peng. He'd been taught that properly functioning markets relied on all parties possessing similar levels of information. That was essential if market forces were going to achieve two of their signature goals, coming up with accurate prices and efficiently allocating capital. So in 1995, Peng set out to narrow the information asymmetry between banks and their clients. He wrote a book, The Structured Note Market, The Definitive Guide for Investors, Traders, and Issuers, a 400-page, decidedly nerdy volume. A decade later, Peng was still working on Wall Street, but no longer as a trader. He was now a researcher at Citigroup, writing detailed analytical pieces explaining the intricacies of the financial markets to the bank's clients. The job was slower paced than being a trader, and Peng savored the opportunity to dig into and then illuminate the financial system's musty corners. He wasn't afraid of ruffling feathers by exploring topics that put the banking industry in an awkward spotlight. The tendency didn't always endear him to his co-workers, as he learned after writing a piece that warned presciently, it would turn out, of the perils lurking in a hot segment of the bond markets known as asset-backed commercial paper. In spring 2008, Peng's latest research interest was LIBOR, a benchmark that was close to his heart because of its importance in the structured notes market. LIBOR helped determine the values of many structured notes. For the past several months, Pang had been picking up unsettling chatter about problems with the interest rate benchmark. The financial crisis was intensifying. Banks were paying more to borrow money, and yet LIBOR wasn't budging. 
That didn't make any sense. Those borrowing costs were what the benchmark was supposed to be measuring. At that point, the market gossip was nothing more than hearsay. Then, in March, Bear Stearns collapsed. Central banks in several countries launched aggressive plans to try to stabilize the teetering financial system. One weapon in the Federal Reserve's arsenal was doling out billions of dollars in loans to cash-strapped banks. The banks had to bid for the loans, and the prices they paid were made public. Here, Peng realized, was an easy way to measure banks' approximate funding costs. He compared the data about the prices of the Fed loans with where the banks were reporting LIBOR. Sure enough, the figures diverged. The banks were paying high interest rates to borrow from the Fed, but LIBOR remained suspiciously flat. In other words, banks appeared to be understating their actual borrowing costs. LIBOR was artificially low. Peng typed up a quick five-page report titled, Is LIBOR Broken? To jazz it up, he stuck a modified Hamlet quote, Something is rotten in the state of LIBOR at the top. Peng figured his report was going to cause a stir. After all, its clear implication was that banks were fudging their LIBOR data, an incendiary accusation given LIBOR's central place in the financial system. So he summoned his boss, an executive named Michael Schumacher, into a small meeting room. It was important to get his buy-in to ensure there wouldn't be any blowback to Peng. I wrote something, and I think it might be a little controversial, Peng said. Then he handed Schumacher the draft. Schumacher scanned the report and then paused for a moment. Go for it, he said. The report was sent out to Citigroup's clients, as well as a handful of reporters, on April 10, 2008. For a few days, nobody seemed to notice. Fleet Street in London used to be swarming with journalists. Starting in the 1700s, more than a dozen newspapers set up shop along the narrow, winding road, vying for proximity to a huge audience of readers, as well as the printing presses clustered in the area. Fleet Street soon became the media capital of the English-speaking world. That dominance lasted for a couple of centuries. By 2008, the name Fleet Street remained shorthand for the British media establishment. But the actual street bore few traces of its storied past, just a handful of ghost-like signs marking the places where long-dead newspapers, like the People's Journal, once resided. The magnificent Art Deco headquarters of the Express now served as Goldman Sachs' European headquarters, its gilded lobby off-limits to all but a few of the investment bank's lucky visitors. A stone's throw away from Fleet Street, across a busy intersection and up a steep flight of stairs, was a ten-story building covered in an exoskeleton of black marble and steel. The building's unusual design garnered it architectural awards after it opened in 1993. Fifteen years later, the building was showing signs of its age. Carpets were stained and worn. Toilets regularly flooded. Overworked elevators, lifts in the local parlance, often broke down. Nestled in a corner of the fifth floor was the London Bureau of the Wall Street Journal. The group consisted of about a dozen reporters and editors who occupied small cubicles divided by flimsy, chest-high dividers. One of the reporters was Carrick Molenkamp, 
a lanky, well-dressed, hot-tempered, eccentric southerner. His cubicle and the surrounding floor were blanketed in papers, books, and back issues of Gray's Sporting Journal, a hunting and fishing magazine. A textbook workaholic, he often didn't leave the office until the wee hours of the morning, only to return a few hours later. He had a tendency of phoning sources or editors in the middle of the night, demanding that they answer his questions or tweak a headline. He didn't believe in the concept of weekends. He consumed pots of coffee and packs of cigarettes every day. Some of his colleagues were terrified of his tendency to swing abruptly from chivalrous mentor to fiery screamer. A reporter in the London Bureau jokingly described Molenkamp as having a face like a bulldog chewing a wasp. On more than one occasion, he and other reporters had to be physically separated during newsroom altercations. Notwithstanding his tantrums, nobody questioned Molenkamp's talent. He churned out scoop after scoop, front pager after front pager. He was renowned for being one of the journal's best-sourced financial reporters. He had moles inside most of the big investment banks, everyone from rank-and-file traders and salesmen to C-suite executives. By the time Peng's report on LIBOR landed in his inbox on April 10th, Molenkamp was already hard at work on a story examining problems with the benchmark. Months earlier, Molenkamp had written a couple stories that mentioned LIBOR. He realized that he didn't actually understand how LIBOR worked and, naturally curious, set out to learn all he could about it. One Saturday in March, alone in the journal's offices, he came across an obscure central bank research report that described LIBOR's erratic behavior. Molenkamp was intrigued. For the next couple weeks, he schlepped around London with a highlighted and underlined copy of the report folded in his pocket, showing the dog-eared document to his sources and soliciting their opinions. By then, LIBOR's problems had become the subject of whispered conversations among banking officials and even regulators. In early April, for example, a Barclays trader had phoned Fabiola Ravazzolo, an analyst at the New York branch of the Federal Reserve, which was responsible for monitoring big Wall Street banks. We know that we're not posting an honest LIBOR, the trader said. Ravazzolo got off the phone and alerted her bosses. Now, such murmurings made their way to Molenkamp. Molenkamp's editor was a longtime economics reporter named Mark Whitehouse. The rare journalist with an Ivy League business degree, Whitehouse had become the deputy London bureau chief in August 2007, after spending time in New York investigating subprime mortgages before it was cool to investigate subprime mortgages. In addition to being Molenkamp's boss, he was in many ways his polar opposite. Slightly built, with floppy red hair, Whitehouse was so mild-mannered that he was sometimes mistaken as meek. As an editor, he was patient, deliberate, and slow. When Molenkamp occasionally started kicking Whitehouse's metal filing cabinets in frustration, the editor stared at him, refusing to react. Whitehouse didn't even drink coffee. He sometimes showed up to the office wearing sandals with socks. A few days before Peng's report was published, Molenkamp had briefed Whitehouse on the planned story. The editor immediately grasped the potential magnitude. But Molenkamp hadn't found anyone willing to speak on the record about the problems with LIBOR.
Even though the concerns were widely held, LIBOR was so ubiquitous, such an ingrained part of the financial system, that publicly raising questions about its integrity seemed to border on blasphemy. Pang's report therefore represented a breakthrough. Finally, someone, and someone affiliated with a major financial institution, no less, had dared to stake his credibility on the widely held critique. But Peng's report also represented a threat to Molenkamp. It was possible that some other reporter would read it and recognize the significance. Molenkamp and Whitehouse accelerated their plans. Whitehouse patiently explained, over and over, to New York editors why LIBOR was so important and, therefore, why the story deserved prominent placement. At the last moment, the journal's page one editors decided that they would take it. The story ran April 16, 2008. The above-the-fold headline was a play on London's misty weather. LIBOR fog. Bankers cast doubt on key rate amid crisis. The story opened. One of the most important barometers of the world's financial health could be sending false signals in a development that has implications for borrowers everywhere, from Russian oil producers to homeowners in Detroit, bankers and traders are expressing concerns that the London interbank offered rate, known as LIBOR, is becoming unreliable. Before Pang even had a chance to sit down at his desk that morning, he was pulled into an urgent meeting. A handful of people were clustered in a conference room, with others piped in over an open phone line. Since publishing his LIBOR report, Pang hadn't heard a peep from anyone, aside from a phone call with Molenkamp. Now all hell seemed to be breaking loose. Your piece has caused a lot of issues, someone barked over the phone. Unbeknownst to Pang, Citigroup's traders previously had amassed positions that stood to profit if LIBOR fell. Now, with the spotlight suddenly shining on the apparent tendency of banks to understate their borrowing costs, LIBOR had shot higher. The three-month iteration had leapt by 0.17 percentage points, or 17 basis points, the biggest jump in eight months. One of Pang's colleagues angrily told him that he had just cost the bank $10 million. Plus, another official chimed in, the BBA was irate. Someone at the Trade Association had called that morning and was demanding that Citigroup retract Peng's report. His colleagues were inclined to bow to the pressure rather than fight the powerful group. Peng replied that he would be happy to retract the report if anybody could identify inaccuracies in it. Nobody did, so the report stood. But that didn't stop his colleagues from bad-mouthing him. My personal view is that Scott Peng was rather distant to the whole process, and would not really have known about the intricacies of LIBOR, not being an expert in the money markets. Andrew Thursfield, Citigroup's representative on the LIBOR Oversight Committee, would later declare, A few hours after Peng's dressing down, Angela Knight dashed off a letter to banks about LIBOR. She said the BBA planned to accelerate its annual process of reviewing the rate, and she invited any input about ways to improve its credibility and she noted that recent negative analyst research by banks like Citigroup was exacerbating the problem. Later that day, the BBA held a two-hour board meeting in its offices. 
One attendee was a longtime Deutsche Bank executive named Charles Aldington. A former trader, Aldington was now chairman of the German bank's British operations. In the meeting, he alleged that many banks were not only downplaying their borrowing costs to avoid the harsh glare of publicity, but also were engaged in outright manipulation to enhance the value of their derivatives trades, just as Deborah Wallace had suspected. By now, Ewan had heard several warnings like this, but Aldington's explicit tone surprised him. The next day, Ewan called Deutsche Bank's David Nichols to discuss Aldington's remark. The fast-talking Canadian managed some of the bank's highest-paid traders. Ewan asked him what Aldington had been referring to. Nichols hurled the ugliest insult he could think of. Aldington wasn't even really a trader at least not in any recent decade. If you're going to be a top trader, you're not going to be making those comments. No bank could manipulate LIBOR. A cabal of them could, Ewan tentatively suggested. What's a cabal? A group together could. That's an interesting conspiracy theory. I'm playing devil's advocate, Ewan clarified. Banks do not collude to try to set a LIBOR rating, Nichols lectured. He added that he was very confident that the media and analysts like Pang simply didn't understand how LIBOR worked. Then he whipped through a detailed dissertation about derivatives and their relationship to LIBOR. Ewan was lost. I must admit, I wouldn't want to try to effectively reconstruct that argument, he sheepishly admitted to Nichols. Nichols wasn't done. I think I'm just hearing a lot of hysteria, he said. The talk that some institutions are manipulating LIBOR is so far from factual. The BBA embarked on a weeks-long campaign to convince everyone, investors, regulators, the media, the public, that all was well with LIBOR. Ewan took the lead, producing a flurry of research reports, insisting that even in the worst case, LIBOR only needed very minor adjustments. He also tried to convince the press to stop writing about LIBOR meeting with Molenkamp and his competitors at the Financial Times to assure them that there was nothing worth looking into. Ewan struck Molenkamp as a lightweight. The entire BBA, for that matter, seemed out of its depth with LIBOR. At times, the frustration boiled over. Screaming matches erupted between the hapless Ewan and Molenkamp, who perceived the BBA as trying to hide the increasingly obvious problems with its flagship product. For her part, Knight wrote a typo-strewn email to bank CEOs asking them to secure specific positive comments from research analysts and to make sure we have them on side. We need to reinforce LIBOR. The efforts were not entirely successful. A Barclays researcher named Tim Bond, apparently not having received the marching orders, went on TV and said what he claimed everyone by now knew. LIBOR had become a little bit divorced from reality. Bond added that the prior September, Barclays had gotten sick of submitting bogus data and decided to quote the right rates. The implication was that most of Barclays' competitors were not doing the same. Knight couldn't believe one of her member banks was throwing fuel on the fire. She lodged a complaint with a senior Barclays executive, Gary Hoffman. In effect, she emailed him, 
We are in a position whereby some less than helpful actions by some banks and less than helpful comments in a febrile atmosphere has created a serious problem out of a market issue. Sorry about that, Hoffman apologized. Even if what he is saying is true, which it is, I'm not sure what the benefit is to Barclays or the industry. On April 25th, Knight met with senior British bankers and officials from the Bank of England at the central bank's headquarters. She told them she was in the midst of a charm offensive in London and New York to convince journalists, hedge funds, and others that LIBOR wasn't irreparably broken. Then she dropped a bombshell. Maybe, she said, a trade group like the BBA shouldn't be responsible for such an important financial benchmark. Perhaps regulators or central bankers should be involved in administering or at least overseeing it. She was greeted with blank stares. Nobody wanted to be responsible for this mess. The first weekend in May, the world's most powerful central bankers gathered in Basel, Switzerland, for a regular meeting at the Bank for International Settlements, a sort of central bank for the world's central banks. On Sunday evening, an elite handful peeled off for what one journalist dubbed the most exclusive regular dinner party on the planet. The gathering was known as the Informal Dinner for Governors of the Economic Consultative Committee. It took place on the 18th floor of the BIS's cylindrical tower, which, like the United Nations, technically sat on international soil. From the United States, Federal Reserve Governor Ben Bernanke and Tim Geithner, at the time the head of the New York Fed, were there, as were the governors of the central banks of Japan, Germany, France, Italy, Canada, and Switzerland. Also in attendance was Mervyn King, the owlish, tradition-bound governor of the Bank of England. At the dinner, Geithner grabbed King for a brief chat to discuss LIBOR. Geithner's research staff in New York, including Ravazzolo, had been digging into the benchmark. They were especially fascinated by the sharp move in LIBOR following the journal's April 16th story. They euphemistically referred to the spike as a repricing event. Geithner told King he had some thoughts on how to improve LIBOR. King said he would welcome the suggestions and asked the American to write him at a later date to explain his thoughts. The conversation didn't last long. King and Geithner were always in high demand, and King wasn't a big fan of impromptu conversations, especially about sensitive topics. On May 19th, the FXMMC gathered for what was probably its most important meeting ever. Representatives of seven banks attended as did Ewan and three BBA colleagues. Ewan kicked things off. They needed to address the problems surrounding LIBOR. The room quickly got an earful from one banker, who said that the fundamental problem was the media, and yearned for a return to the days when nobody was looking into the industry. Debate shifted to whether and how to change LIBOR. One problem was that any change could ripple throughout the financial system because so many financial contracts, everything from mortgages to derivatives, contained language linked to LIBOR. We need to adopt a minimal approach, another banker said. Too big a change would cause an explosive reaction. But the absence of change could be just as damaging, someone else warned. Everyone knew this meeting was taking place. 
If it ended without any action, what would people think? So, what to do about banks that submit bogus data? The consensus? Not much. Policing should be done by just picking up the phone and have a conversation behind closed doors, a banker said, winning nods of assent from his colleagues. The meeting concluded with no progress. A few days later, the FSA met with the BBA. The regulators pointed out to Ewan and his colleagues that LIBOR's accuracy is poor. But the agency wasn't interested in getting involved. Despite the onset of the financial crisis, it was clinging to its light-touch strategy. For their next project, Molenkamp and Whitehouse set out to prove that LIBOR was broken. They decided to look at an instrument called credit default swaps. These were basically insurance contracts between a bank and another party that paid out if a company defaulted on its debts. Investors used the instruments to protect themselves when they were buying corporate bonds. This way, if the bonds defaulted, the swaps would make up for their losses. The swaps had another interesting feature, which is what appealed to the journal reporters. Their prices fluctuated along with the perceived riskiness of the company whose bonds they insured, and as a result, they were a decent proxy for companies' borrowing costs. As a company became riskier, buying insurance on its bonds became more expensive. Similarly, lenders would demand that the company pay higher interest rates on any loans. White House, the math whiz of the two, started building a massive Excel spreadsheet that compared banks' CDS prices with their LIBOR data over a several-month period. The finished spreadsheet showed that many banks' LIBOR submissions had little resemblance to their CDS prices and, therefore, their apparent funding costs. The story hit on May 29th with a headline, Study Cast Doubt on Key Rate. Like the April 16th article, it ran on the paper's front page. The story focused on especially suspicious data being submitted by Citigroup, UBS, and a few other banks. It quoted two statistics professors who validated the methodology and significance of the journal's analysis, as well as a man from Del Mar, California, whose monthly mortgage payments had leapt higher as a result of bizarre movements in LIBOR. Molenkamp and Whitehouse further noted that some public sector entities, hospitals, schools, and governments, that relied on instruments linked to LIBOR to protect against swings in interest rates were increasingly worried about the benchmark's integrity. This time, the reaction was swift. The banking industry went into overdrive to destroy the story's credibility. J.P. Morgan took the unusual step of publishing a piece of research specifically aimed at debunking an article, calling the journal story deeply flawed. Do I think that LIBOR is perfect? No, wrote Felix Salmon, one of a number of well-known bloggers to blast the journal's piece. In this world, no spread measure is going to be perfect, especially as tenors of longer than a couple of weeks. But LIBOR is not nearly as flawed as the WSJ makes it out to be. The public broadsides and lack of public affirmations discouraged White House. With an epic financial crisis brewing, he decided to move on to other topics, 
Molenkamp, after six weeks of relentlessly churning out minor and major LIBOR stories, also soon shifted gears. Nevertheless, just about everyone with any business trading derivatives linked to LIBOR read the journal stories. Goodman had forwarded the original April 16th article to Reed, who'd been impressed. It was the clearest articulation he'd seen of what was going on with LIBOR, and passed the story on to Hayes. The trader took solace in the article's focus on the U.S. dollar version of LIBOR, not the yen one in which he specialized. Besides, the article wasn't focused on traders. It dwelled on banks understating their LIBOR submissions as a way to protect images of financial strength. The next day, Hayes had texted Goodman his latest LIBOR-moving request. By the time of the second article, though, the journal's onslaught grated. Just trading like a monkey, Hayes told a colleague, bit worried about this bloody LIBOR story. He speculated to a friend that perhaps ICAP, now pushing its own benchmark to rival LIBOR, was the source of the journal stories. In London, RBS traders and ICAP brokers bantered about the article. When they mean dodgy LIBORs, don't they mean Tom Hayes? Neil Danziger hollered over a squawk box. Vincent McGonagall plopped down into his leather desk chair in a corner office at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Springtime was short in Washington. Not much time separated the chilly, wet winter from the stifling heat, humidity, and mosquitoes of summer in the drained swamp that served as the nation's capital. April 16th was one of those all-too-rare spring days, warm but not hot, a few clouds but no threat of rain. Along the Potomac River and the National Mall, delicate pink and white cherry blossoms flowered. The CFTC was in Washington's downtown business district, a tidy grid of modern buildings occupied mostly by law firms and trade organizations whose businesses revolved around lobbying federal policymakers. McGonagall's seventh-floor office, with plush blue carpeting and enough space for a sofa and coffee table, overlooked an adjoining building whose roof was jammed with satellite dishes. He was the second-highest official in the agency's enforcement division, which was supposed to ensure that market practitioners adhered to the rules governing the sales and trading of everything from pork belly futures to interest rate swaps. McGonagall, with bushy eyebrows and sandy blonde hair, bore a slight resemblance to Robert Redford. Raised in a small Philadelphia suburb, after law school, McGonagall had devoted his entire professional life to government service and had been at the CFTC since 1997. Inside the agency, he was known as a low-key and friendly fellow, a straight shooter, a bit cautious, not someone who would bend the rules or push the envelope. At industry conferences, as colleagues sipped complimentary drinks and mingled with finance executives, the socially awkward McGonagall tended to huddle in a corner talking to other CFTC officials. At times, his behavior led colleagues to wonder whether he had Asperger's syndrome, a mild form of autism. The original mandate of the CFTC, founded in 1975, was to regulate the fast-growing universe of futures and other instruments being traded on exchanges like Chicago's Merck. But the agency never managed to establish a reputation as important, 
partly due to the efforts of sharp-elbowed rival bodies like the Securities and Exchange Commission to eat away at its turf. When a soon-to-be member of the agency's board was awaiting Senate confirmation, a former agency official gave him a warning. You're going to need a hobby. The CFTC was so slow-moving, so dull, that being one of its five commissioners wasn't considered a full-time job. One commissioner tended to work from his home in Arkansas, only occasionally showing up at the agency's headquarters. Staff cycled through the agency on their way to lucrative jobs representing companies that had business before the commission. The CFTC's technology was embarrassingly antiquated, a problem that dogged plenty of federal agencies, but especially troubling for one charged with overseeing vast, complex financial markets. Up until around 2010, the CFTC still allowed institutions to submit their trading records by fax each evening. Staffers then had to manually input the numbers into creaky spreadsheets. By the time the figures were processed, they were obsolete. The agency's weak reputation was compounded by its seemingly obsessive focus on small-bore cases. McGonagall and a small cadre of other enforcement officials had been trying to overcome that image. Earlier in the decade, alerted by the collapse of Enron to a new class of frauds involving energy companies manipulating markets, the CFTC started homing in on bigger targets. The agency, partnering with the Justice Department, nailed several executives for trying to rig oil price benchmarks that were based on data submitted by energy trading companies. But the cases took forever to put together. McGonagall wanted to find some way to quickly establish the CFTC's street cred. Each morning, McGonagall received an email from an agency staffer that contained a list of the day's news stories that affected the universe that the CFTC was supposed to be overseeing. On April 16th, he scrolled through the clippings. The synopsis of the journal's story caught his eye. He clicked on the link and read the full piece. Then he read it again. For the next couple of weeks, McGonagall did some preliminary research on LIBOR, what it was, how it worked, why it mattered. One day, he walked down the hall to the office of his deputy, Gretchen Lowe. The enforcement division was housed in a warren of narrow passageways lined with tall file cabinets. Little natural light filtered in. Lowe, tall, gangly, and bespectacled, had been at the CFTC even longer than McGonagall. She liked being an underdog, going toe-to-toe with banking lawyers who she knew were taking home in a month what Lowe and her ilk earned in a year. She and McGonagall discussed the journal story and whether there was more to it. The only way to answer that was to launch an investigation, but that was easier said than done. The agency was constantly battling budget shortages, resources were so tight that employees had to bring their own coffee mugs to work, and investigations were expensive. Agents had to fly all over the world. Lawyers had to be hired. Depositions recorded. Before going any further, McGonagall and Lowe needed to alert their higher-ups. Their manager was Stephen Obey, who was running the CFTC's enforcement arm. Raised in the Bronx, Obey was the son of a New York City bus driver. 
A decade earlier, he had been toiling as an associate at a major law firm, trying to figure out what he wanted to do with his life. A colleague gave him some advice. Lawyers were becoming like doctors. If they didn't develop specialties, they became dispensable. The way to build a specialty, he was convinced, was to work for a government agency. So Obi applied for jobs at the CFTC and at the New York City Transit Authority, the same agency that had employed his father. Both made offers, and he opted for the CFTC gig, partly because of its convenient New York location in the North Tower of the World Trade Center. He joined in 1998 as a trial lawyer. The learning curve was steep, but the transition was made easier by the CFTC's tradition of targeting small fries. For a while, Obi's big get was busting a couple of California taxi drivers for fraud. On the morning of September 11, 2001, Obi was at work on the 37th floor of the North Tower when a plane smashed into the skyscraper. He felt the floor buckle. It was like riding a wave. He and his colleagues scrambled down the stairs and escaped, shocked but unhurt. The brush with death prompted Obi to again reevaluate his professional life. He wanted to go after bigger fish. That fall, he volunteered for a federal task force investigating Enron. The experience proved formative. The CFTC and Justice Department worked closely together, and Obi realized the power that justice brought to the table. People readily lied to the CFTC, but it was much different when an FBI agent was in the room. And the psychological impact of staging a perp walk, parading a handcuffed suspect in front of the TV cameras, was not to be underestimated. The CFTC didn't own any handcuffs. Obi was tall, beefy, and at times sported a crew cut. He looked a bit like a cop. Once, when he accompanied a CFTC commissioner to a speech near the United Nations in Midtown Manhattan, passers-by mistook him for a Secret Service agent. In April 2008, Obi had just been promoted to become the agency's acting enforcement director. He wasn't shocked by the journal's first story. Some pension funds had been grumbling to the agency for months about apparent problems with LIBOR. The funds felt they weren't getting the money they deserved on some of their derivatives contracts as a result of LIBOR's inaccuracy. But the complaints hadn't prompted the CFTC to do anything. McGonagall and Lowe told Obi the LIBOR case looked like it had the potential to be big. Two days later, a Friday, the CFTC commissioners held their weekly closed-door meeting to discuss enforcement matters. The meetings were not known for being exciting. If there were nothing major going on, the commissioners might spend time ruminating about the effects of something like an African civil war on coffee prices before devoting 15 minutes to running through a checklist of open investigations. The general rule of thumb was that the enforcement staff would seek approval from or at least give a heads-up to, the five commissioners before they devoted more than 20 man-hours to an investigation. Obi gave that heads-up. He told them he wanted to open an investigation into LIBOR. We don't know much about it, but we're going to take a look, he said. Nobody objected. A few weeks after Geithner chatted with Mervyn King in Switzerland, 
his staff produced a six-point plan to address LIBOR's shortcomings. The ideas were predicated on the notion that not only was LIBOR inaccurate, but also that banks were deliberately skewing their data. At the time, that was a radical accusation. The BBA was still insisting that the rate was sacrosanct. The notion that banks were intentionally distorting it could be interpreted as heresy. Geithner's solutions, emailed to King on June 1st, mainly involved modest tweaks to make it feasible for someone in an oversight role to double-check LIBOR's accuracy and, if problems were discovered, to rectify them either through rewarding accuracy or punishing inaccuracy. Two days later, King's assistant replied on behalf of the governor, notifying his American counterpart that the Bank of England would pass on the suggestions to the BBA. From late May to early June, dozens of emails and phone calls crisscrossed the Atlantic between top officials at the Fed, BBA, Bank of England, and, to a lesser extent, FSA, in an attempt to forge a consensus about what to do with LIBOR. The process, at times, was slowed down by King's refusal to use email. He preferred to have his private secretary, Chris Salmon, the same Chris Salmon who years earlier had done a stint at the International Monetary Fund in Washington and helped stoke his nephew Tom Hayes' interest in finance, print out the emails, and then King would scrawl his barely legible comments on the top of the pages. The BBA incorporated some of the suggestions into a report it was working on about ways to improve LIBOR. It wanted to cite the central bank's input, but they wouldn't let their names be included. In any case, despite the increasing concerns about LIBOR, the Bank of England continued to rely on it. When it unveiled a new emergency lending program for British banks, it used LIBOR to determine the interest rates and fees banks would pay to participate. There was nothing the Americans could do, which is just how Hayes, his fellow traders, and the BBA liked it. That summer, Lowe assigned a few employees to the investigation, a significant investment of manpower, considering the enforcement unit's entire staff, including secretaries and other low-level employees, barely numbered a hundred. Progress was glacial. By September, five months after the journal's initial story, the investigators hadn't collected a shred of outside information. They hadn't conducted any interviews. This was still nothing more than a hunch. When Obi asked McGonagall about the status, he was alarmed to hear that things had stalled, in part because one of the only staffers on the case had gone on maternity leave. The CFTC, Obi concluded, needed to either do something or move on. It was clear that they needed outside help. There just wasn't much information available to the public. A natural starting place was the BBA. McGonagall and Lowe drafted an informal letter to the group, figuring it would be just as concerned as they were about the prospect of LIBOR being manipulated. As a courtesy, Obi got in touch with his counterpart at the FSA in London, a prim former white-collar defense lawyer named Margaret Cole. The two had enjoyed a solid working relationship dating back to their collaboration on some of the energy price manipulation cases earlier in the decade. But to Obi's surprise, 
Cole didn't seem all that interested in LIBOR. She hadn't heard anything to suggest there were problems with the rate. Her only request was that the CFTC keep her agency in the loop. On September 10th, less than a week before Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, the BBA received a letter from the CFTC stating that the agency was conducting an investigation into the U.S. dollar version of LIBOR. The letter asked the BBA to hand over documents and other information. Similar letters went to a half-dozen big banks. Ewan got to work figuring out how to derail, or at least stall, the investigators. He sent a memo to Knight explaining that it was not clear that the CFTC even had jurisdiction to make such a request about the London interbank offered rate. He suggested enlisting the FSA to help fend off the Americans. The BBA's lawyers, from the law firm Clifford Chance, gave similar advice. That sounded good tonight. Her impression, after talking to the FSA, was that the agency was at best lukewarm about the investigation. On a recent conference call about LIBOR, all of the agency's top officials had hung up, leaving a lone junior employee representing the agency. So the BBA replied to the CFTC that it would be happy to cooperate, but all requests needed to be routed through the FSA. For now, it wouldn't be answering any of the CFTC's questions. With the BBA's hometown regulator in its corner, Ewan and his colleagues breathed a sigh of relief. A month later, on October 10th, Ewan and Miles Story at Barclays got on the phone. Markets were closed for Columbus Day in the United States. That just gives us more time for more banks to fail, Story joked. Ewan wasn't as jovial. A few days earlier, someone had called him to complain about the inaccuracy of the LIBOR submissions made by a German bank, West LB, the same company that employed Daryl Reed's buddy as a LIBOR submitter. Ewan phoned the bank and relayed the complaint. The next day, West LB boosted its submission. Between us, I was horrified at the ease with which I did shift the LIBORs, he told Story. You can see exactly when it happened. Was this a sign of just how arbitrary bank submissions really were and how easy it would be for someone to call in a favor and get a bank to change its data? Later that month, the BBA held a meeting with representatives from some of the world's biggest banks to discuss the CFTC investigation. Executives at the American Giants, Citigroup, Bank of America, and J.P. Morgan grumbled about the CFTC's vague requests for reams of detailed information. They were reminded that the CFTC had limited powers to tell banks what to do. Some of the banks, though, remained antsy. Barclays had a policy of generally destroying audio recordings of phone calls involving bank employees after a year or so, but it hadn't adhered to its own policy. Its army of compliance officials and lawyers soon discovered that tens of thousands of the audio files still existed. Worrisome indeed. A week later, the FSA finally got around to asking the BBA to provide the CFTC with some rudimentary information. There was no deadline. On the evening of November 4th, a senior official at the Bank of England, Paul Fisher, 
shot off a personal note to Ewan. It had been a long day at the central bank, with a global crisis raging. Fisher's job included keeping tabs on the foreign exchange market, which, thanks to the violent financial turbulence, had suddenly become a full-time occupation. But Fisher was preoccupied with an unrelated problem. He had read a Goldman Sachs research note earlier that day about LIBOR. Fisher was no expert on the benchmark, but he knew its definition. It was the rate at which banks thought they could borrow money from each other. The Goldman report had gotten the definition wrong, describing LIBOR as the rate at which banks loaned money to each other. When Fisher noticed the error, it got him thinking. How widespread was the confusion? LIBOR was an integral part of the world's financial plumbing. So how could the great Goldman Sachs misunderstand what the rate was supposed to be measuring? Fisher tried to find the definition of LIBOR on the BBA's website. When he finally tracked it down, he told Ewan the definition seemed to be ambiguous to say the least. Out of curiosity, he checked Wikipedia's description of LIBOR. It included the same mistake that Goldman had made. If Goldman's can get it wrong, maybe there's a complete lack of public understanding, Fisher wrote to Ewan. If so, I would start by putting the official definition in pride of place on the BBA website and then get someone's son or daughter to edit Wikipedia. A week later, someone corrected Wikipedia's definition. It was perhaps the only time that the BBA actually addressed a grievance about LIBOR.